What is worship? Uh, my friend Rob McLeod from a Wednesday morning Bible group came up with this wonderful definition. Give God worth. Give God worth. Simple, to the point. There are two sides to worship. There is this gathered congregation where we are worshiping together to give God worth. And that spills over into a lifestyle where ending at about noon on Sunday and going the full circle till 10.45 next Sunday, you are still a worshiping person in a lifestyle of worship. Every church has a liturgy or an order of service. It's different for every church. Each church develops its own personality. Even within the same denomination, you will find differences between churches, even those that are highly structured in their liturgy, uh, there will be some very profound differences between them. The order of service that Green Tree has includes most of the following things, and they are not always announced, so we don't say, now we're going to do this. They just flow and blend, but here are the things that we do. There's usually a call to worship. There's prayer. This may consist of adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. We sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. We hear testimonies or life stories. People tell of how God has touched them and bless God uh, for his activity in their lives. There's usually a welcome, and you are very active in the welcome because you greet one another and I encourage you to think that that is a worshipful thing that you are doing. We normally give some announcements, and that again is a means for you to connect with what the church will be doing through the week. There's a scripture reading, there's preaching, there is the offering. In our church, this is low key, so we've got a model church front and rear, and you will see our members often go and put the offering in there. That is a very real part of worship, and you ought to be worshiping through your gifts, whether you do it here on a Sunday morning, or as I do, I just have the amount subtracted from my bank account, and I don't even have to think about it, but it's a worshiping thing that I do. The sacraments of baptism and communion are celebrated here, and then there is a benediction. Now, each element of that worship requires your full and active engagement. You are involved because worship is not a spectator sport. You are not observing me worship. You are engaging yourself in the worship. So this morning, we're going to look at the call to worship. Now, this should have happened about uh, half an hour ago, but more than half of you weren't here yet. <laughs> so it would have been wasted. <laughs> so here is what a call to worship does. It calls us to focus on God's worth. In general, we arrive to worship, and we are facing away from God. We are still absorbed with the things that have been taking place in our lives. Uh, we may be flustered by children who were running late. We may be distracted, anxious, indifferent. 
We may be brooding over relational tensions, uh, facing financial pressures, life curves ball, life's curve balls, and maybe you even had insomnia on top of all of that. And that's how you arrived here. So the call to worship beckons you to transition from this mindset of disengagement with God to turn yourself around and engage your heart and mind to be less self-absorbed, but rather to be God-absorbed. The call to worship is a call. It's like a clarion trumpet calling you, saying, be engaged. This is something that I have to give myself to. I am to be transported consciously into God's presence. Uh, it doesn't invite you to leave all your baggage, but it invites you to bring all your baggage with you, your soul dappled with good and evil, your distracted mind, your fears, anxieties, and anguish to come just as you are to the majesty on high. And it is therefore this powerful tool uh, to view all of life, not from the perspective of the mud-filled trench that you live in Monday through Saturday, but from the perspective of the vista of God's throne. It is this call then, and it will usually consist of a brief reflection. This morning Chip read a few verses from the Psalms, a scripture passage, or maybe a prayer that is meant to grab our attention and turn us around from facing outward to facing into the presence of God here. So the religious life, says Thomas Green, is not a dull, grim drive toward moral virtues, but a response to a vision of greatness. Forgetting our little selves, our petty ambitions, our puny triumphs, our foolish cares and fretful anxieties, we reach out to the beauty and majesty of God. Therefore, worship engages you fully and completely. Uh, body, some love to worship with their bodies, and all of us are in God's presence with our minds, with our hearts. And the worship leader, whoever it is, preacher or worship leader, uh, Chip or some other worship leader, is not God giving me cues to entertain you. It is rather me giving you cues because you are the performers and God is the audience. Let me then give a call to worship. It's the wrong time in the service to do it, but you will see that generally a preacher will try to call people to worship along the lines in which he's going to develop the scripture and it unites and makes the whole service uh, unified and harmonious. Two days after the tornado flattened Joplin, I saw a father interviewed on CNN. The interviewer asked him when he had last slept. He said, I have not slept in 72 hours. Why not? My 12 year old son is missing. 
how can I sleep? I have to find him, dead or alive. I must know where he is. Just so, our Father who is in heaven. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, The Father seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And in his search, the Father left no stone unturned. And we will see that in the sermon this morning. No stone unturned to the point of giving his only begotten son to the gruesome horror of the cross in order that you might be here worshiping this morning and might worship God throughout the rest of the week. And now let us pray together. Great God, we bow before you to worship. This is our response to all of life, that when things are rough and tough and terrible, we may worship. And that brings to us your presence and connects us with you in a deep and reverent way and changes the entire perspective of our living. So thank you, great God. And now as you have searched us and found us, will you give us your aid so that we may hear your word and may understand your seeking heart. And this to the glory of Jesus our Lord. Amen. If you are to live an abundant life, you will have to understand the role of worship in your life. The Westminster Catechism is a foundational document to our church and denomination. I recommend it to you. I've given you a, a link to a website that will give you the entire document. It asks profound questions and answers them from the Bible. You can use it as a catechism for your children. And the first question in this wonderful document is this. What is the chief and highest end of man? It's such a great question because it's asking what actually engages you and what is it that you have as a purpose and how will you fulfill that purpose? And the answer to question one comes, man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. What a great statement about worship, to glorify God and enjoy him. So listen to some quotations about the majesty of worship. And John Macquarie says, but to adore, from the Latin ad horare, is to pray toward. It is to go out of oneself to communion with a reality larger, deeper, purer than one's own being. Adoration is an enhancement of one's being, though paradoxically this comes about through going out of oneself. William Temple says, Worship is the submission of our nature to God. It is the quickening of the conscience by His holiness. 
the nourishment of the mind with his truth, the purifying, and I would add enlargement of the imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of the will to his purpose, all of this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. And finally from uh, Tyler de Chardin, to adore means to lose oneself in the unfathomable, to plunge into the inexhaustible, to find peace in the incorruptible, to be absorbed in defined immensity, to offer oneself to the free fire and the transparency, to annihilate oneself in proportion as one becomes more deliberately conscious of oneself, and to give one's deepest to that whose depth has no end. Does it not occur to you that in order to be the person that you were meant to be, worship is the dimension that is going to promote that? Does this not make every fiber of your being yearn to say, I want to worship. If worship does all of that to me, enlarging my heart and mind, connecting me with beauty and eternal reality, then I want to be a worshiper more than anything else. God, give me a seeking heart. Allow me to pursue you. And whenever something distracts me, will you in your mercy intervene so that I may in fact continue the journey of worship because it is the one thing that is going to enrich me and make me a satisfied and fulfilled person. Well, the surprising thing is that God is the seeker in our worship. And so Jesus says to the woman at the well, a foreigner, the Samaritans actually despise the Jews, but he strikes up a conversation with her and he brings it around to worship. And he says to her, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. What does this seeking father do? How does he engage? How does he go about the business of searching and finding? You see, here's the predicament. God loves the world. He says so. He so loves the world that he gives his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish. But how is he going to reach this world, especially since the world is alienated, really couldn't care less, is in rebellion, is dead to God and spiritual reality? There's a whole missing dimension. This is how God does it. He starts with one man. God comes and decides to befriend Abraham. 
And when he befriends Abraham, he begins his purpose of reaching the entire world. In isolated instances, he connects with Abraham. Abraham becomes his friend. They walk together. Abraham builds altars. And in the process of that, God gives Abraham his promise and a covenant. Here's one of them. Genesis chapter 12. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Many years later, another occasion, God reiterates the promise in Genesis 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham complains a little bit to God when he says, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to Abraham, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Look up into the sky. Count the stars if you are able. Then he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him for righteousness. So God starts the process. He protects. He provides. He gets the process going all under his sovereign hand. He has started the process of reaching the world, and this is some three, over 3,000 years ago. Enough to give you a chill down your spine that God was so intent on seeking and searching you out that he began the process way back millennia ago. Abraham's children grow some 400 years later. They're a, a thriving band of people. And God has prepared them in a specific way. There comes a famine to the land of Israel. The only food is to be had in Egypt. But God has prepared the way and Joseph was sold into slavery by his servants into Egypt. And Joseph rose out of his slavery through the ranks to become a governor in Egypt. And when the Israelites come, they are saved by the provision of God aforehand. Now they follow 400 years, and in those 400 years, they become enslaved to the Egyptians. They are doing hard labor. They are full of groaning, and God hears their groaning. And after 400 years, he decides it's time to move on, and he delivers them through Moses. So Abraham, who was 
in covenant with God and had isolated instances when he built altars, now the nation receives its constitution on Mount Sinai. And this constitution is God's instructions in which they will build a tabernacle in Exodus 25, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Into that Ark of the Covenant goes the tablets of the Ten Commandments made, made uh, popular by none other than Harrison Ford. This is where that all found its roots. The tabernacle with the covenant in it travels with them. And each night they set up the tent of the tabernacle so that God is in the midst and they camp around it. And in their wilderness journeyings for the next 40 years, God travels with them very visible in the tent which is pitched every evening uh, for the, uh, signifying the presence of God. Eventually, 40 years later, they come into the promised land. And another, maybe 100 or 200 years later, David says it's time to build a temple because we now have permanent boundaries and we are a nation, we are a kingdom. I am the king of a real nation. But God denies David the privilege of building that new temple for the simple reason that he has sinned very grievously against God. Solomon, therefore, is given the privilege of building the temple. Now in the land, a nation is established, and God has a permanent home in an established nation. King Solomon dedicated that temple. He did it during the Feast of the Tabernacle, also known as the Sukkot, and again, I give you a reference in the bulletin where you may research the Sukkot festival of Israel. Here's what he says when he dedicates the temple. The Lord has kept the promise he made. I have succeeded David my father, and now I sit on the throne of Israel just as the Lord promised. And I have built the temple for the name of the Lord the God of Israel. I have provided a place there for the ark in which is the covenant that the Lord made with our ancestors when he brought them out of Egypt. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, spread out his hands toward heaven and said, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, you who continue, wholehearted, who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promises. With your mouth you promised and with your hand you fulfilled it as it is today. Now, Lord, the God of Israel... Keep for your servant David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said you shall never fail to have a successor to sit before me on the throne of Israel. 
if only your descendants are careful in all they do to walk before me. And now, God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David, my father, come true. And then he has a moment of reality. Here's this magnificent temple with loads of art and gold and uh, took seven years in the building, uh, 50,000 men, seven years. And he says, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I have built. Yet I give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy. Lord my God, hear my cry. And then comes this. Hear the supplication of your servant that when they pray towards this place from heaven, they will You will hear them and forgive. Now why has all of this happened? Well, Solomon understands very clearly as he brings the prayer to an end, and there's a lot more that I'm not reading. You can look it up for yourself. In verses 41 to 43, the whole focus of this is towards foreigners, towards the world. The temple is not built for Israel to become a holy huddle, Under its shadow, it is built so that strangers may come and may learn and may hear. And so he ends his prayer, As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When they come and pray towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. And so you've got this movement of God from Abraham to the nation to the land. And in each stage, the worshippers that God is seeking are brought on board. Abraham, his tribe, the tribe becomes a nation. God dwelling among them in their journeying. And now God settled in a land with a nation around him. And all of this, First Kings happened on the Feast of Sukkot or the Feast of the Tabernacles. All through, God had said, you are to remember my mercy and my deliverance of you. And so an annual festival about the harvest time was instituted. Uh, As a boy growing up in South Africa, I had a whole bunch of Jewish friends, and I remember this very clearly because they were still practicing it. And when the Sukkot came around, they would build booths in the yard, and for seven nights the children would sleep out in the booth, and they would have special celebrations in the synagogue, and they were remembering the incredible purpose of God in seeking out worshipers so that he guided with manifest destiny one man becoming a nation in order that God may draw the world to the glory of himself. Now here's the interesting thing. We skip forward another 1,000 years This festival has been carried on every year through the thousand-year period. And now we find ourselves in that same temple and the Lord Jesus Christ there on the Feast of Sukkot. 
The Feast of Tabernacles is again the backdrop to this incident in John chapter 7. And what, what had developed in the liturgy of the time was that for seven days the people celebrated, lived in their booths and tabernacles, came to the temple to rejoice and remember God's grand provision for them. And the high priest with a golden jug would lead a procession down to the pool of Siloam. He would dip water. They would lead the cheering crowd back into the temple and he would pour the water at the base of the altar. All to say, God has overseen our wilderness wanderings to the present time and provided for us miraculously. And then... John chapter seven thirty seven. on the last day and the greatest day of the festival, the last day was different. It was the great day, and as you'll read in the uh, article that I direct you to, that last day is actually called by a different name. It's on the tail end of the Feast of the Tabernacles, but it's the festival which says what God has done in the past is merely a foretaste of what he's going to do in the future, and Messiah will come. And Messiah will be the water. So the last day, the high priest did not dip water. They did the same procession, and as he came to the altar, there was no water and the whole population had in their minds embedded this thought in a visual form. God is going to provide even more spectacularly. The Messiah is coming. And he will provide water, not just physically for our bodies, but existentially for our salvation. On that day, as the high priest reaches the altar and has got no water to pour, Jesus stood and cried out in a loud and a passionate voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Now can you see the progression? It starts with Abraham, the one man. It goes on uh, to the Ark of the Tabernacle with them in their wandering. It finds fulfillment in the temple. But all of that is still a foreshadowing. And Jesus says in, uh, we've skipped John 7.39, By this he meant the Spirit, whom all those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. And now we have the fulfillment of it all. The Messiah as the realization of the God who searches for worshipers. The God who reaches the world, though it does not want to be reached. He is so determined, he will leave no stone unturned that this whole process is finds its fulfillment in the Messiah who baptizes every believer in the Holy Spirit. Now it is not God dwelling with one man. 
It is not God in the Ark of the Covenant, in the tabernacle. It is not God dwelling in Jerusalem. Now on the Feast of Tabernacles, the celebration of the dedication of the temple, God says, I turn every one of you into a temple. Every one of you will be a person with rivers of living water flowing out of you. And this is who you are by design. Now suddenly you begin to see that your life is cast in an entirely different perspective. For wherever you go as a believing person, you go with the Holy Spirit indwelling you. In this way, God can reach out into the entire world. He will go with a team of young people to Guatemala, and they will be living water. He will go with you into your Monday blues. And if you will begin to worship, it will become a place of refreshment for blues people around you. If you are trapped in some relational mud hole and you don't know how to get out of it, if you will begin to worship and begin to understand that your purpose is not just to be happy, but to glorify God, you will begin to see the perspectives of your own heart change as you become a worshipping person and the rivers of living water begin to swell up and flow through you. Sometimes overtly, sometimes by a deliberate act of kindness, a word of encouragement, even a word of exhortation. But even without all that overt stuff, you are taking the presence of God to wherever you go. And just as God oversaw and designed everything, including the Egyptian slavery and the deliverance and Joseph being sold into slavery, God has you exactly where he wants you. It may not be congenial to you. You may not think it is a very nice place to be. But if you will begin to worship right there, you will begin to see God at work in a way you never anticipated. So where does that leave us this morning? Well, number one, are you thirsty? What does your dry well look like? What is the dryness in your own life where you are dissatisfied and where you are grumbling and saying, I wish this was different? Jesus says, come to me and drink. Come and worship. And as you worship, there will be the change. So that's the invitation to all of us. And the second element is, the moment you stop worshiping, you will turn into a grumbling, complaining, dissatisfied person. So are you taking living water wherever you go? Are you deliberately saying to God, I will go into this mud hole, this trench, and I will, I will worship you. In that case, rivers of living water will begin to flow into your worst situation. Let us pray together.